Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. That's what R.C. Sproul called Jiminy Cricket theology. Listen to this. Let your conscience be your guide. It won't lie to you. Marvin Gaye. This is dangerous advice. The conscience, the heart, the inner guide for right and wrong after the fall of itself is not a trustworthy and reliable guide. R.C. Sproul said this about the conscience. The conscience can be a voice from heaven or hell. It can lie as well as press us to truth. It can speak out of both sides of its mouth, having the capacity either to accuse or excuse. After the fall, sometimes our conscience excuses sin and accuses righteousness. Working properly, though, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says the conscience is a built-in warning system that signals us when something we have done is wrong, ideally speaking. The conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. It inflicts distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. That's the way it's supposed to work. But some wires are sparking after the fall. The, the calibration is off. Sometimes, like I said, our conscience will lead us in the wrong direction. It can be seared by the practice of sin so that we now approve sin instead of disapprove it. It becomes set on self and sin and renaming it as God's will. Listen to this from Jeremiah. And the conscience is part of the heart. Mind, will, emotions, conscience. Jeremiah diagnoses the situation. The prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys pointing out the sin of the people, calling them back to covenant faithfulness. But own this about your heart. If your philosophy is, I just follow my heart, Look what Jeremiah says about our heart. The heart is deceitful above everything and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What does it mean to be deceitful? Not a good thing. To be deceitful is to have a tendency or a disposition to deceive or give false impressions. Here's what I want you to go away understanding. Your heart believes lies. And speaks lies to you. And it needs to be recalibrated. And it only is recalibrated by God's Word. The truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. The psalmist put it this way. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I may not have put that one on there. I'm not sure. I have stored up this Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word, God, in my heart that I might not sin against you. What we need is God's word in our heart to be the judge of right and wrong and the guide into truth and error, righteousness 
and unrighteousness. And without the Word, listen to me, your heart will lead you astray. The companion verse to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled with the Word in Colossians 3. Because the Spirit works through the Word. And the psalmist said, I've hid my word in your heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus. Think about Jesus when Jesus faced temptation. Son of God, right? Devil's trying to tempt him. Adam had failed in temptation. The second Adam comes to succeed against it. How does Jesus succeed against temptation? It is written with Scripture. Not, well, I hear you, Satan, but I just don't feel that's right. Or, yeah, hey, that's a good idea. That feels good. It is written. Go read. I'm not going to do it this morning. Go read Matthew 4. Go read Mark 1. Go read Luke 4. Go read the accounts of Jesus succeeding in temptation where Adam had failed and Israel failed and we have failed as our representative establishing and fulfilling all righteousness starting in that as after being baptized with that season of temptation and every time He responded it was with God's Word. And today, as we look into Acts, and last week we saw the church and their generosity and those who had more were selling and giving so that those who had less could be provided for, not be lazy, but be taken care of. Just the wonderful example ending with, with Joseph, who's called Barnabas by the apostles because he's a son of encouragement, encouragement in the faith, a lover of Jesus. Doing that, he sold land and he'd given it so that the, the needy could be taken care of. And then we have this contrast, and we're going to see from this couple two people who act, listen, they acted purely on conscience. They let their heart be their guide. And it ended in disaster. You might wonder why I titled the sermon The Death of Grace and Beauty. Trying to be cute, I guess. But did you know Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious? And Sapphira's name means beautiful. And they were neither. You see divine church discipline right here in Acts 5. And it's not the first time in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about that. But here's what I want you to take away. The heart divorced from the Word in temptation leads to sin and discipline. Even death sometimes. The heart divorced from the Word leads to sin, discipline, and death. I mean, look at... You might say, where are you getting all this? Well, look, this is there's, there's a heart behind what they did here. Now help us when we're tempted. Point us to Christ and His Word. But look what first look at the heart divorced from the Word leads to sin. Example, Ananias and Sapphira. This The first couple of verses. Now look at this. There's a lot behind this. So what they see is the church, the church's acts of sacrifice, right? And people who have 
more are selling it and they're giving everything from the, all of the proceeds to the church to provide for the needy. And, and so they see this going on. They see people doing these things that are well spoke of and they, they hatch this plan in their hearts. It's mentioned twice in this text. Sin flows from the heart. We know that what defiles a man. It's not the externals. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person, Jesus said. But it says in, in, in 1 and 2, A man named Ananias, Mr. Gracious, with his wife Sapphira, or beautiful, sold a piece of property. Isn't there anything wrong yet? And with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some part of the proceeds. Haven't done anything wrong yet. Well, see, Peter tells them that. They could have just said, you know, we sold the land for 25000 and we want to donate $10,000. Cool said, kept back and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sold this piece of property and with his wife's knowledge and only with her knowledge, they held back some of it but came and gave the impression that they were giving all of it. They're part of the visible church in Jerusalem. They have made a profession of faith. Were they Christians? You can read comments on both sides. Are they believers who have fallen into sin? Are they unbelievers just who have made a profession of faith, but they're in the church and their fruit is going to show them to be unbelievers? I, I, I lean that way. But we're nowhere told inspired you know, we have to deduce it from Scripture wherever we come out. And nowhere does it say, and Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers. So, you know, don't worry about that. We don't know for sure. Evidently, it's not important. But I, I think they probably are showing, their fruit is showing their heart. And revealing themselves to have a profession of faith, but not a oh, possession of faith. But they're part of the church and they're a negative example and a contrast to both Barnabas and the rest of the church. And together they've come up with this scheme. Now what is the scheme? What is the sin? Because Peter's later going to say, it was your property before you sold it and it was all yours afterward. You didn't have to give a dime. The sin wasn't giving part. The sin was lying. We'll see that. But they concocted a scheme to appear to give everything Look what was important to them. The praise of men. For people to think, wow, they're cool too. They're giving everything, you know. So it was, it was pride and greed. They wanted the praise of men. And then they wanted a lot of money too. So they wanted the appearance of being very generous while they held back some and told nobody. Think about it as they're thinking about this. As they're putting this thing together, as they're talking, you know, we see what the church is doing. You know, we have this piece of property over here. We're really not using this piece of property. It really is extra to us. So what we're going to do is, is sell that piece of property. And Sapphira, that trip we've been wanting to take, that, 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 that new mule we want, We, we can take part of this and buy that. We can give the rest of it. But, and and it, everybody will think we've given the whole thing. Nobody will know. 
So we can do both and you know we can we can be thought of as big shots. We can we can give and yes, the part we give that'll help people. It'll be good, it'll help people. And we can take our trip or buy our meal or whatever whatever it is we want to do at the same time. So it's greed and pride caused them to concoct this thing in their heart so that they both look good and generous and they still live good, easy, self-first lives. They trusted themselves and made the decision based on their own hearts. But what does it not say that they did? Search the Word to see if it was a good plan. This was an easy decision to make. Ninth commandment, forbidding lying, would shut this down. I feel like it's God's will for me to marry this man or marry this woman. I know they're not a believer, but you know, Sue married her husband when he was an unbeliever and God saved him. He's going to do the same. No, God says don't be unequally yoked. But in this case, it says you shall not lie. Shall not bear false witness, which includes all lying. You are to uphold the truth and not be false. That would have been the end of the discussion. So here's what we've hatched up. What does the word say? Oh, my. We better not go this way. We better just not sell the property if we can't you know, be honest with what, what we do with the proceeds. It would have been a short discussion, but that's not what they did. They trusted themselves, their own heart and mind. So they sold the land. They brought some as all. That's the sin. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. And before we see what happens to them, we do that. We make decisions all the time based on how we feel and what we think and without consulting the Word of God. Big decisions sometimes. And small decisions sometimes. We justify sin sometimes in our lives because we don't consult the Word of God. And it would be an easy thing. Should I marry an unbeliever? No. Should I lie about what I give? No. We don't pass plates, but you know, plate coming around. Should I dip in instead of giving some? Take me a little bit for lunch. No, thou shalt not steal. Pretty brazen to do that in church, by the way. I'm not saying we don't pass plates, so none of you have ever done that here. This is what happened to them. Proverbs 14 and 16, but Proverbs 14, 12 says this. Listen to this. The heart detached from the word will convince you to go in a sinful direction. And make it seem right. Look at this. Proverbs 14.12 There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. My heart will lead me astray. And I will go for what feels good. What seems good. What's easy. And if I don't bring the word into that picture... I might think I'm going the right way when I'm actually following death instead of life. Satan instead of Jesus. That's the hard thing for us to hear. They followed Satan instead of Jesus. And their failure to both consult and live by the Word of God has led to sin. And sin is serious. Any failure to keep God's law or violating God's law 
failure to love Him. And He's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. These are people who profess faith, at least, who have concocted a fraudulent thing about them. Fraud in the church. Now look what happens. Watch this. Peter sends out a private investigator and finds out what's going on. And No. Look how the Spirit was at work in the Apostle to just diagnose the situation. Now look how Peter, Peter confronts Ananias. He says, Peter said, now Ananias, imagine that. The, 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 the gift is still warm, laying at his feet. And he hears his name, Ananias. Okay, here comes some of that praise. Now... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Think about that. Ananias and Sapphira, instead of being filled with the Spirit or filled with Satan... We're led by Satan. Satan wants to destroy God's work. He wants to bring a bad name on God's work. He's, you know, this is the first report of sin in the early church and God's discipline upon it. Why has Satan... I think about Peter when Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. That's jarring. It should be. Ananias hears his name expecting to hear praise and he says, Satanist. <laughs> Not fun. But why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now things are really starting to turn inside. I mean, the lid is off. God, God knows our thoughts before we think them, our deeds before we do them. We can hide nothing from God. You're not tricking God. He knows you better than you know yourself. Read Psalm 139. But he confronts Ananias and look what Peter says. See, the church wasn't forcing people to sell their stuff and give all their money. Nobody was forcing them. It was all voluntary. People who had more than they needed liquidated some of that to meet the needs of those who were faithful and diligent but struggling and needed help. And then Ananias and Sapphira see an opportunity to be pumped up. So Peter, this is not communism. I said this last week. right? He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, this was your stuff with which you could do whatever you wished with. You did not have to give any of this to the church. Nobody made you do this. You decided to do this, but you decided to do it in a way that blasphemed God, that lied to the Holy Spirit, that deceived your brothers and sisters because you're greedy for gain and you just wanted praise. And he says, listen, why? and this is why I brought out the heart to start with and thinking, I was thinking about our hearts and what we do with our hearts and with the Word and in temptation. He says, what... Why is it, the end of verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And now Peter just lays it down. You have not lied to men primarily, but to God. Against you and you only have I sinned. 
David said. You have not lied to men, but to God. Your sin is, your death penalty sin is lying to God. There was not a verse, you know, if, if you lied, you're struck down. This is strict justice. This is divine church discipline. This shows us the seriousness of sin and how it is dealt with by God. This pictures the final judgment when at that point there will be no answer for sin. If we go to the final judgment without Jesus who has lived to provide a perfect righteousness, who has died to pay the penalty for our sins, if we're not hidden in Him and clothed in Him and a child of God through faith before we exit this life, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there will be no answer but sin and condemnation. And it pictures that. Look what happened. Think about the Romans 6.23, the soul that sins shall die Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I know, I'm jumping around all over the place, Andrew. He's having a hard time back there. You have not lied to man but God. Look at this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. He died. Let me rephrase that. God killed him. People try to get out of, out of these verses. Well, he just had a heart attack. Well, that's a mighty big miracle that his wife come had one too. It was catching. Got a heart attack virus running around. This is pure and strict justice. This is justice, not injustice. This is what he deserved. He fell dead and breathed his last. This is not the only time in the Bible stuff like this happened. It should have happened in Genesis 3 were it not for God's plan of redemption that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, not just spiritually dead, physically dead. But think, think about uh, Nadab and Abihu. The new community is being established. Laws, you know, given to Moses and Aaron. They're setting up, and, they, and Aaron's sons have become priests, and they let their heart be their guide. Potentially, had a little strong drink first, but then they go in with the censers instead of taking fire from the altar. They did any old fire will do, and threw incense on it and walked into God's presence. Toast. Don't even mourn from them. Quickly take them out and bury them. Death at God's hands, the Jewish people would say. It's judgment. Quickly get them in the ground. Don't even, not even allowed to mourn. They'd have an Abihu struck down. Why? Because they didn't treat God as holy. He tells Moses, You tell him, among those who approach me, I will be sanctified, I will be treated as holy. And he had given them strict instructions on how through, the, through the, the, the typical system that pictured Christ and the real forgiveness he would bring, how they could approach God and serve God, but they decided to do it their own way, just to saunter into God's presence with their own fire, and boom, immediate judgment, dead. Think about Uzzah, David bringing the ark back finally to Jerusalem. You know what the mistake was? 
They didn't go by God's word. They put it on a cart like the Philistines did. If they'd have put the poles in it and the, the Levites carried it, there wouldn't have been a problem. That's how God said to take care of things. But they put it on a cart and the ox stumbled and, and Uzzah, all Uzzah did was reach out and touch it. But he's, he, it's as though sinful man is touching the holiness of God. Bang. Dead. David got mad. Put the ark away for a while. And you know what? When they went and got it, you know how they went and got it? They finally, the God got through. They went back and got it. You know how they got it to Jerusalem? They put the poles through it and carried it. Levites carried it to Jerusalem. And nobody died. Because now the word was the guide. Not the new cart. Philistines. God struck down Ananias because he lied to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit. And this is the infancy of the new community and God is showing that new community the seriousness of sin and how it is to be seriously dealt with. And it says that after he died, it says, now look at this. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And we'll talk about fear in a minute. But I bet. Next person walked up there with a gift. I bet they a little more trembling going on. So Peter confronts Ananias. Ananias is judged and quickly buried. Now here comes Sapphira. John MacArthur said, look, it was a three-hour church service. It's three hours later. Don't know that to be true. <laughs> After an interval of about three hours, verse 7, this is Peter confronting Sapphira, right? But he questions her. And she's got an opportunity to tell the truth here. and To, to repent of that plan. But it says, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Why they were separate and going in, what, what's going? maybe she went to the hairdresser, she wants to look good when, when the praise comes in, about the gift, you know, entering late and fashionably. But it's going to unravel really quick. After an interval of about three hours, his wife, Sapphira, beautiful, her name, comes in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes. Tell, tell me, you know, if they sold it for 50 and they gave 25, and that was the scheme, I don't know what it was, but they presented it as though they, get, they sold it for 25. And so she comes in later and he says, well, did you sell it for 25? And she said, yeah. We did. And Peter, now watch this. Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet. Of, maybe they're sticking out under the door. Don't know. Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at, or at the door and they will carry you out. That's all he said. And then we have another crumple. And immediately she fell down. So the gift is at the apostles' feet. And it's a dishonest, it's a, it's a fraudulent gift, and they are also falling at the apostles' feet for in judgment. Immediately she fell down at the feet, breathed her last, euphemism, died. When the young men, they came in, they found her dead, they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Ananias, dead, judged, buried. Sapphira, dead, judged, buried. 
their scheme had reaped what it deserved. This is not injustice. They were not treated unfairly. Listen, don't go before God and ask for fairness. That's not fair. You want fairness? R.C. Sproul tells a story of, of teaching in college and his students you know, transitioning from high school to college and they didn't transition well and it came time for papers to be due. And you know, I don't remember the percentages, but just say 90% of them had their paper ready, but 10% of them didn't. And they were like, oh, Professor Sproul, please, please have mercy on us and, and give us a little more time. We're, we're not used to this load of college and you know, we'll, we'll get them done, but can you give us just a little more time? And he gave them another week. And they got their papers in. Got, no, well, what do you think happened next time papers were due? It wasn't 90%. It was 50% had their papers done and 50 didn't. The next time it was fewer than that. What are they doing? They're presuming upon His grace, right? And so at the last time He said, where are your papers? They said, oh, wait, oh come on, come on, Professor. You know, we'll get them to you. Just chill. No worries. We'll get them in, you know, another week or two. He said, Johnson, you have your paper ready. No. F. What did they say? Not fair. Right? They all howled it's not fair. He said, oh, okay. How about your last paper? Was that here on time? Well, no. F. How about the previous paper? I mean, you want justice. You want fairness, right? Was it late? Yeah, F. He said, not, not one more cried out that wasn't fair. And the point is, they got justice, not unfairness. Ananias and Sapphira were justly treated. The wages of sin is death. That's what it should be done. Strict justice looks like this. And really, they should have never lived this long. And we recoil at these kind of stories. And rightly so, it's hard, right? Think if somebody from Grace Church did that and, and, you know, there's no apostles here, but, you know, created and then boom. They, they, I mean, but God has treated nobody wrong here. This is justice. Sin is serious. We, we don't treat it the way we really should. And look at the effect on the church. And we've already seen this down the same great fear words up in verse 5 or repeated again in verse 11. And great fear came upon all the unbelievers. No. Great fear. Mega phobos. Not just fear, but a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And nobody's just sauntering in the church anymore. Mike will preach about that next week when he picks up the next... Or two weeks. I didn't mean to scare you, Mike. When he picks up on that. But fear was the result. Wait a minute. The church is not to be afraid of God, are we? Well, that's your 20th, 21st century cultural Christian. Yes, you are. But not a slavish fear, not thinking he's going to whack you every time you do wrong, right? But a fear that a good a, a son has of a good father who wields discipline well and the rod of discipline well and properly. Great fear came upon the church. What what is the fear of God? It, that word just phobos, phobia. You know, fear of spiders. Anybody? I don't hate spiders. I pick up a snake. I know it's weird, but I hate spiders. Something weird about a spider. 
Phobia, fear. Phobos, that word means a state of severe distress aroused by intense concern for impending pain, danger, evil, etc. And then great on the front of it. Amplified. And the unbelievers, now they're, they're afraid to even come into the church. And the believers have a holy trembling. A trembling awe, if you want to put it that way. God's not a plaything. He's not to be messed with. He's not just the man upstairs. Don't ever say that. He is holy. Nadab and Abihu, I will be holy, considered holy, treated as holy by those who approach me. Uzzah, right? Ananias and Sapphira. He is holy and His settled response to sin and righteously so is judgment. But thank God He's gracious and merciful and provided a way for us to be saved and to make us children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus took the, the condemnation. God didn't just brush it aside like a grandparent. Grandchildren seeing it, oh, it's okay. You just kind of sweep it under the rug. And it's not the same people that raised the kid, but that's what kids say. That's not the parents that raised me. Grandparents are easy to sweep it aside. Not God. He can't. He's holy. He, he has a righteous and just revulsion to sin. That it, it, it is judgment apart from mercy. So to fear God as a, as, a, as a child of God, think of a diamond. The fear of the Lord is like a diamond. It's really multifaceted. It's about the glory of God. And there are different aspects to it. You saw one in the call to worship. But to fear God is to be joyful in Him, to delight in Him, to be obedient to Him, to love Him, and to have a healthy fear of Him. Real fear. Trembling. God praises those who tremble at His Word. I mean, take the Word that serious that you tremble at it. It's God's Word. You know, you tremble in His presence. Think about John when he saw Jesus glorified in Revelation. He didn't run up and hug Him. Hey, Jesus, how you doing? As my friend says, he sucked marble. He went face down, fully afraid. So Jesus, do not fear. God is holy and sin is serious. And these two concocted a plan flippantly to lie to God because it felt right in their heart and they already had the money spent they were going to hold by. Do a whole sermon on the fear of the Lord. We'll do that someday. But what was the problem here? The, the root problem was that they had lying hearts that were not calibrated to the Word of God but filled by Satan and lied to the church. They were focused on self and the praise of man, not God. They were living for the glory of themselves and not the glory of God. They were enjoying themselves and not God. They focused on that. Listen, they needed to distrust their hearts and they didn't. We need to distrust our heart. We need to believe the Word. We need to search the Scriptures when we're living daily life. It should be more and more dwelling in us. But then making decisions by God's Word. Examining our hearts. Examining our plans. 
Is this how God would have me to think and to live? He knows our hearts and He revealed the scheme to Peter. Think of this also. Satan, look at this will help you. Satan in temptation highlights personal advantage. He focuses on you and how this is going to benefit you. Think about Adam and Eve. Oh, you won't die. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Nadab and Abihu, I can only imagine. It's okay. You're, you're a priest now. You do whatever you want to. Really. Just go on in. It'll be wonderful. Satan highlights personal advantage. He gets to you to think about how this is going to bless and benefit you and to forget the Word of God. I'm not real happy with my spouse right now, but this one over here is looking pretty good. So I'm just going to ditch this one and go to this one and it'll be okay. God's merciful. That's justifying sin. He makes personal advantage be the forefront. Go ahead, it's no big deal. It'll turn out well for you. Who, who is Satan? He's the liar and father of lies. Think about Judas and how he used him. Made a little cash in the process, right? And then once he was done with him, there's a way that seems right and the end is death. And he will highlight personal advantage to get you to go there. Listen to me, sin is always harmful. It's never helpful. It might feel good for a season. Sin is always harmful. Righteousness is always helpful, even though it might be painful for a season to make the right decision. Sin is never helpful. The glory of God, the good of others, that's what we're to live for. And we're to trust God's Word. It is written is how we're to respond to Satan. Now look at this. Thirdly, sin deserves immediate judgment. Death and hell, all sin will be judged. Think about that. Sin deserves immediate judgment. Praise God, He doesn't always do this. This is rare. It's just, but it's rare. I know I would not still be alive if He immediately struck down Christians who sin much less unbelievers. We forget how holy God is. God is not obligated to show mercy. We're born thinking He is. You created me. You're responsible for me. you got to do good for me. No. He's not obligated to show mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, He says. And that's justice. And this is an account of divine church discipline. I won't talk, I'm not going to talk about church discipline, but church discipline is real. It's guided by God's Word. It tells us how we are to address sin in the church. Preach the Word is part of it. Teach the Word. And then you, I mean, if your brother or sister sins against you, you go to them, and if they repent, you gain your brother. If they don't, take somebody else with you. If they repent, hallelujah. If they don't repent at that point, then you bring it to the church, bring it to the leaders. We'll try to help with that. And most of the time, that church discipline process, when it's carried out faithfully, I won't say most of the time. I haven't had that experience. Some of the time, it ends up in people repenting and being restored, and it's wonderful. Some people persist in their sin and go off and seem to live okay. Think about that. What a judgment of God to give you over to your own way and let you think it's working. 
But this is an account of divine judge discipline. Listen, I want to warn you of this. Listen, think about this. Think about this. Listen to me. The lack of immediate judgment doesn't mean we haven't sinned. Sometimes we test the waters, don't we? Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. This must have been okay. No. What tells you if sin, if it's sin or not and whether it's okay or not? Circumstances, feelings, nice people. This. God's Word. Even though most of the time God is long-suffering and patient. Think about David and all the bad things David did and how patient God was and he finally sent Nathan with the crooked prophet finger and said, you are the man. And that cost him some stuff in his life. But God forgave him and restored him because he worked repentance in him. This is an example of instant judgment. This picture is final judgment. But in general, praise God, he's long-suffering, working righteousness in us. And just finally, grace is not an absence of justice. Just because he's gracious doesn't mean he's not being just. The only way he can be gracious to me and you is that Christ took the justice for us. He didn't, he didn't sweep his justice under the rug. He didn't violate his justice. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to live in fulfillment of the law in thought, word, and deed to provide a perfect righteousness. He came and he lived for us, was humiliated for us in his life to be living under his own law, fulfilling all righteousness, like he said in the baptism. And then he took the guilt of his people onto him while he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and he died on the cross to pay the penalty. Not just the physical. The physical is horrible, but the wrath of God due God's people was poured out on him and being God and man, he could sustain that wrath on that cross and end up saying, it is finished. But just because you didn't see it, don't you dare water down the, the hell he went through for you. He took the equivalent of eternal hell for each one of us on him, on that cross. He satisfied God's justice for us. And he could do it because he's God and man. Grace is not an absence of judgment. Every one of our sins cost Jesus dearly. And they cost us dearly too. See, we think they don't because there's not immediate judgment and things seem to do well, but every sin costs you something. We are way too familiar and flippant with sin because of grace. We're way too literally, too, too small in our passion against it because of grace. We, we presume on God's grace. Maybe that's what they were doing. And listen, we are way too familiar and presumptuous on His grace. If we really own what Jesus did for us in His life and especially in His, in his death on that cross, we will not be flippant about sin. And we will not be presumptuous about His grace. We will run to His throne of grace in confession and heartbreak when we sin against Him, crying out for forgiveness and power to repent. And we will press into growing repentance over our sin. He died for us that we might live for Him. He didn't die to make it okay for us to sin. He died for us that we might live for Him. 
and grow in it. So listen, don't follow Jiminy Cricket. Don't follow Marvin Gaye. Don't follow Satan. Don't let your heart be your guide. Detached from the Word of God. Because it will lead you astray. Distrust your heart. And trust His Word. That's the way forward. And the grace that He has purchased for you and the power of the Spirit, through that He grows us in grace. He grows us in distrusting our heart and trusting His Word. What did Paul say at the end of his life that he was? The chief of sinners. He distrusted his heart. He trusted God's Word and His grace. Distrust your heart. Retrain your heart with God's Word so that you can quickly identify the ways that are going to dishonor Him and disobey Him and quickly identify the path that He would have you go, even if it's painful. Please believe me. The heart, even of the Christian, divorced from the Word of God, will lead you to sin and misery and dishonoring of His name. It will cost you every time. It never helps you. There's a way that seems right to us. But divorce from the Word, the end of it is the way of death. But grace, His grace, His free forgiveness, His free gift of righteousness leads us to a desire for and a pursuit after joyful righteousness. Because we've been forgiven. Leads us into a life of blessing. Because we're His children. And eternal life. Forever. With this King who loved us so. To live for us. And to die for us. And to be raised from the grave. To be reigning for us. And coming again someday. To receive us unto Himself. New heavens, new earth. No sin, therefore no misery. Full satisfaction, joy, delight, purpose, righteousness, holiness, forever. It won't be boring. It'll be eminently exciting. Jesus is the Word incarnate. And He's give us, given us the Word written, which is primarily about Him. Let it be your food, be your trust, be your guide to knowing Him, to loving Him, and to living for His glory and not dishonoring His name the way Ananias and Sapphira did. Let's pray. Lord, how can we thank You for Your patience with us? How can we thank You for Your long-suffering, for Your salvation, for sending Your Son to save us? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. We are your enemies. We deserve nothing good from you. And yet we have a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift of your grace through the propitiation, through the dying for us that Jesus accomplished. Please help us to trust you and distrust ourselves. Please help us to walk with you by faith and not by sight. Please help us to be passionate 
about you and your glory by being passionate about being filled with your word because we're your children and have such an amazing, gracious relationship with you. Lord, forgive us for taking you for granted. Forgive us for taking your word for granted. Forgive us for leaving it on the shelf. Forgive us for following our own hearts and dishonoring your name. May we learn from the the highly intense negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. The glory of your grace, the seriousness of sin, the beauty of your holiness, and to walk with you through your word in the power of the Spirit. To not just live good lives for you, but to be light and salt that you call us and on mission for you. Thank you for free forgiveness. Thank you for free righteousness. Thank you for dying for us, Lord Jesus. Help us to live lives that adorn you and glorify you. By your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.